You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This episode is brought to you by our Patreon members. Thank you so much. Join our Patreon for extra episodes, interviews, extra content, and to help support the podcast and help us continue to do the work we do. Go to Patreon.com slash Ancient History Fangirl to learn more. Violent raiders, but they were good-looking violent raiders. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McManamy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. We are so thrilled to welcome Dr. Kelsey Fuller Schaefer author of Norse Mythology, The Gods, Goddesses, and Heroes Handbook, From Vikings to Valkyries, an epic who's who in old Norse mythology to the podcast. Welcome! (laughs) We're both massive Norse mythology Vikings fans, so we are here for this. Thanks, it's so great to be here. It's wonderful to have you. When we wrote our book, we had we had some Norse mythology in ours as well, so um, we're really excited to hear more about it. So when we talk about Vikings, who are we talking about exactly? Sure. Um, So it's a very specific group of people who do a very specific thing in a very specific time and place. Um, Usually we think about, um, you know, for those of us who did not grow up in Northern Europe, it's the most um, kind of fascinating, well-known point in Scandinavian history. If you know nothing else about Scandinavian history, you know something about Vikings or you know that they existed. Um, But Vikings... Are, are pirates. It's a job description. It's a, a noun formed from the verb, which basically means to raid. So the Viking Age of Scandinavia starts, usually we put that marker beginning in 793, which was kind of the first mainstream Viking attack on Lindisfarne Abbey in what's contemporary to UK. So their very first big successful attack when the word started to spread to the rest of Europe, like, hey, we got to watch out for these heathen guys coming from Scandinavia. And we tend to end the Viking Age around 1066, marked by the Norman Conquest, their big unsuccessful battle where they kind of lost, got taken down a peg. And society as a whole, uh, those members of society kind of stopped doing so much raiding and started doing a little more settling down and having more um, stationary forms of, of occupation. But most of the people who lived in Scandinavia during those years were not Vikings, right? The Vikings were just the pirates. Um, so there are plenty of normal people who are farmers and, and poets and craftsmen. Luckily, not every single person uh, coming out of Scandinavia at that time was uh, violent and had access to a ship and, and weapons. But that's, that's kind of the short version of who the Vikings were. What can we learn about Viking culture and society by looking at their myths? Well, there's, I, think, I think you both know this. I mean, after, after you wrote your Women of Myth book, but there's a, re- a lot you can tell about people from the stories that they tell about themselves and their their ancestors, their descendants. And there's a lot that we don't know for sure and we have to speculate on. Um, But the myths do tell us how humans of the Viking era in Scandinavia, like how they thought they were created, right? It gives us a creation myth. The first man and woman were carved out of wood and given life by Odin and his brothers at the the time that the earth was created, uh, Midgard, uh, where humans live. And and when we think about like, you know, these humans were living very tough lives and in a, a harsh climate, there was a lot of violence, um, a lot of illness. They were also pretty certain that the universe was going to end. It was not a time of great, great optimism. But so like interwoven into the stories are a lot of snippets of just everyday aspects of their lives, right? Their social norms, their social values, 
for example, over and over again, the stories reinforce expectations of honor, right, and honesty. Like if you if you make a promise, you got to keep your word. Uh, even if it means death and destruction, it usually means the same if you break your word. So you might as well just be honest. Hospitality, you never want to turn a stranger away because it might be Odin in disguise and he will roast you. Beauty and vanity, intricately tied to wealth and, and social status, right? Those things are very important, as well as, you know, socioeconomics, gender norms, transgressions, what happens when you when you're a, a man or a woman who who breaks your your gender role, or what happens if you're a you know poor person who acts too presumptuously around a rich person, and so then when we like augment those things with other methods, you know like archaeology, other other forms of learning about history, we can put together a fair portrait of some of the customs. For example, like what a what a Viking funeral looked like. Unfortunately, there are no flaming arrows involved when we look at you know the historical record. Um, but then there are a lot of things that we can't explain, um, we don't know about, and they just weren't included in the description. And I think we still do this today. For example, if I were to tell you, oh, I'm going to a wedding at the end of the month, you would probably ask me, oh, who's getting married? And I would say, you know, it's so-and-so. Because so many of the sagas are concerned about families, there's a lot of, and then so-and-so married so-and-so, and they had a child named this, right? But they never stop and say, they got married in a church. The bride wore a white dress because if you've ever been to a wedding, you know those things. Or it's only worth noting, you know, when somebody does something unusual, right? The the bride wore a blue dress or something like that. Thor marries someone he's not supposed to. <laughs> the bride was Thor in disguise. Yeah, that's a, that's a little unusual. <laughs> right, exactly. So, yeah, I mean, you know, we can we can kind of piece together like what people ate, what clothing looked like, that sort of thing, but some of the finer points, like, for example, religious rituals, we don't have a ton of information on that. So we're, we're kind of guessing. I'm also super curious about what you mentioned about gender roles and what happens when people transgress them in the ancient sagas. Uh, could you tell us a little more about that? Uh, sure. You know, it's, it's kind of funny because we have a lot of badass women in the myths and sagas. Historical records seems to suggest that this is disproportionate to how many times this actually successfully happened in real life. That's not to say that there were never any women warriors. There's a grave in Sweden and Birka, and it was recently DNA tested. For a long time, they thought this was a man. He, had, he was very wealthy and he was buried with weapons and, and that sort of thing, horses and such. They DNA tested it and it looks like it might be a woman. So she might be a badass woman warrior. Um, but that's like one grave, right? It's one out of many. So there are, there are stories where, um, you know, divorces get ugly. It's a pretty male-dominated society that comes through very clearly in the myth. Even good guys like Odin and Thor will, trigger warning, brag about sexual assault and things like that, right? Um, this is not a society that as a woman I would have wanted to uh, live in. But every once in a while in the stories, we do get a woman who disguises herself as a man and does the Viking thing and becomes extraordinarily wealthy. And usually there are some consequences for that. Um, the one I'm thinking of really prominently is Hervor from the, server, uh, the saga of Hervor and Heidrich. She ends up arguing with her father's ghost and convincing him to give her a cursed sword. But the sword is cursed. So it brings death and destruction down on her family, right? Even though she, she did the great Viking thing and was very respected as a man, nobody knew she was a woman. Eventually, fate caught up with her and caused all kinds of problems. So kind of in the real world, I think a, a woman would not have been treated kindly for transgressing. And in the mythological world, there are usually pretty bad consequences, too. There's also characters like Lagertha, though, that um, we included her in our book. Did she? I don't remember her having some bad consequences for anything she did. I mean, I think it ends where she stabs her husband and just takes the throne for herself, which I don't know. I was pretty down for and she was also in Vikings. Um, I think you mentioned the show in your book, right? I'm a huge fan of that show. I don't know. Jen, did you watch it? I haven't seen it. Um, I'll have to add it to my list of things, my, my gap of knowledge here. But it'll be on my to-watch list this autumn. Well, so I will confess, I also have not watched the TV show, which is probably kind of embarrassing to admit. However, I will say, Legisa is one of the more enigmatic women in the sources. I think the only place that we hear about her is in Saxo Grammaticus's uh, History of the Danes. And she's kind of just in this one paragraph where it's like, and then she sent wolves after him and he divorced her. And, and then that was kind of, they went their separate ways. 
I don't know what happened to her from there. She's kind of like she never reappears in any of the sources. So she's kind of just hanging out there in that that one reference. And we never hear from her again. So I don't know what happened to her. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. What sources did you use in your research, and how much do you think you can trust those sources in terms of giving us the accurate picture of what pre-Christian Vikings actually believed? Yes. So when we're looking at written sources of Norse mythology, just about everything we have was written about 200 years later, around 1200 in Iceland, actually. So not even the Scandinavian mainland. So just about everything we have is interpreted by Christian writers. So there's two main documents for the stories of gods and, and goddesses. Um, the, the Poetic Edda, or the Elder Edda, um, is written in poetic meter, as the name might suggest, recorded in a, a manuscript called the Codex Regius. Um, I believe you can see it in Iceland if you're lucky enough to, to get into those vaults. And it was written, the poems themselves are part of an oral tradition that were told by word of mouth, um, recited in some way, we're not quite sure how, again, because they don't tell us what to do with them. They're just the poems. And then a fellow by the name of Snorri Sturluson, about 1220, tried to take the Poetic Edda and turn it into the Prose Edda. So he took all of these poems and all their contradictions and all their kind of quirks, and he tried to turn it into a coherent narrative. Um, now, Snorri was living in Christian Iceland. Iceland converted about the year 1000. So he was a, a Christian, but he was fascinated by the myth. And the, the thing about Snorri is he never intentionally tried to make things up. He was trying to be accurate. So he's done some kind of strange things. So like, for example, the way the way the poetry works, you might use the word eagle or hawk interchangeably, depending on if you need the alliteration to be a vowel or a consonant, because it's got this pattern of alliteration in the in the poetic meter. So like he saw that and decided that it was an eagle sitting on top of a hawk or a hawk sitting on top of an eagle. Like when we look at it now, we think, oh, there, there's just the poetry, right? But he was looking at it and seeing these words used interchangeably and decided, hmm, stack of birds. So like often in art now, you'll see them stacked up. So like a pre-Christian Norse person would look at that and be like, what the heck is that? <laughs> like, Yeah, yeah, that's probably not what they meant. And like, again, we can't go back in time right now and like, you know, figure out where Snorri got this from and, and precisely why he thinks there's a hawk sitting on top of an eagle, but just little things like, like that. But he did try his best. And along with the, the Eddas, we also have the Sagas, which are mostly concerned about humans. The sagas of the Icelanders are supposed to be like historical fact, as I put in quotes, because they're, they're stories of real families, kind of real people that did exist, although they are greatly embellished. 
<laughs> like they meet ghosts and, and interact with gods and that sort of thing. But the mythological sagas are kind of like these, these stories of, of these great heroes that may or may not have been at all related to anything factual. Um, like the saga of the Volsungs, I think, is one of the more famous ones, or the saga of Ragnar Volsbrook. There are people who try to prove that, you know, Sigurd and Ragnar were, were real people, but I don't know that that matters. And I don't think that's the point of those sagas. Like, I think they are supposed to be myths. So essentially, if we want to go to the source and not have something filtered by, by Christianity, we really can't look at these documents. If we want to study Norse myth, we kind of just have to say, well, I trust Snorri and leave it at that, right? I, I trust that he was doing his best to do it accurately. Um, compare it with the, the poetic era in the Codex Regius and say, well, this is what we got to work with. We either look at these Christian writings um, about Norse myth or we don't have any writing. So they're, they're kind of, uh, we just do the best we can with what we have. Um, but again, you can kind of look at other areas where writing occurs, like runestones. They have some nice snippets in there sometimes, and also the artwork. For example, a, a really recurrent kind of icon of, of artwork from the Viking era is the scene of Thor fishing for the Midgard serpent with the entire ox head. Like that was something that was drawn over and over again um, in the Viking era. And so when we read those stories, it's like, oh, well, obviously, right? That that aligns. That was a that was a story that was told. Yeah, I'm utterly fascinated by this because so much of what we know about the ancient world, particularly the ancient Western world, but it happens in the East too, in the English language, come to us sometimes from a Christian lens, and it it is difficult to unpick that, and it's super important to unpick it. Otherwise, you're not really getting an accurate sense of what the people and the culture believed in the stories. You're getting a very very biased view. Do we have any parts of the mythology that we have today that are clearly traced back to ancient pre-Christian sources? And I'm thinking about the Torlisman plates too, which were, um, I think, date from the 500s to the 700s AD, which show what people possibly think are Odin with his two ravens, among other things. But I'm just so curious about um, which of the myths we could say is potentially more or more accurate to pre-Christian beliefs based on what we can connect to the ancient artwork and things that are outside of the Christian lens. I would say that anything written in the Codex Regius is probably as close as you're going to get to the pre-Christian. It was written by Christians, but again, it was based on the oral tradition. Um, and it's kind of funny if you talk about that manuscript with a linguist, it's like, sometimes they forgot to write it in the old style. It's like if you were reading, if you were trying to recopy Shakespeare and then every once in a while you like forgot to Shakespeareify your language and, you know, just kind of whoops, not going to replace the whole piece of paper because paper is expensive and then kind of pick up again. So those, because they were part of an oral tradition, you can kind of see in that manuscript, they're doing their best, you know, a couple hundred years later. Um, those, I think, nobody was trying to invent new myths with those, even if they were um, perhaps embellishing a little bit to make their their kind of heathen ancestors seem like a little more palatable to Christian audiences. They might have like toned things down or they might have done the opposite. They might have ramped things up a little bit um, just for entertainment value. But I think... I think the stories that we have in the Eddas were definitely told. It's just the, like the little details and the manner in which they were told and why they were told that's so different now. The Codex Regius. Yeah, the Codex Regius. I'm thinking back to my very old Latin. That translates to something as like a book of kings or list of kings. So it kind of makes a lot of sense to me that you have bits of it that are a little less Shakespeare'd up, shall we say? I like that I like that expression. Because it is literally like they're trying to create at this point in time essentially like their doomsday book. Um, like their list of all the old kings going down through the beginning of time. So some of that history is, is what I'm guessing they were doing, that they're trying to pull from. They just want to actually get the um, the actual like timeline, the list of people, um, and as much of what they did as possible during that time. And that aligns a lot with what the Christian sort of like scribes and monks were doing, uh, trying to create this unified narrative about different places as they sort of went into them. I lived in England, I, my husband's British, for about 16 years. And you can see uh, such Viking uh, influence in the UK. And a lot of the stuff you also see in the UK is this sort of like around that 700, 800s, like this idea of trying to unify peoples and a commonality of like lines of kings and towns and places. Yeah, and they were obsessed with kind of 
well, in that era of Christianization, there's a lot of like proving your legitimacy that has to happen, right? The divine right of kings. That's like maybe a term that was meant for somewhere else some other time, but it's the same idea that we see over and over again is like, who rules? Why do they get to rule? Um, how can we make sure my rule is unchallenged? Um, and so I think we already mentioned Saxo Grammaticus, his history of the Danes. That's exactly what he was trying to do. He was trying to connect the lineage of Danish kings. Snorri Sturluson, the, the fellow who wrote the Prose Edda, he also wrote another book called Heimskringla, which is the same thing, but for the Norwegian kings. Like the, the copying of the mythology was very intricately tied to these kind of pseudo-factual histories where the, the kings that were paying for this research to be done and recorded were also somewhat connecting themselves to gods like Odin and, and Thor. So this is basically all medieval propaganda. It was used as propaganda, I think, for a few kings. There's one, um, one of the King Harolds claims to be a descendant of the Saga of the Volsung, for example. I think the stories themselves are not supposed to be propaganda, but they're used in a way to legitimate the Christianization of these countries, which was done rather violently. Like it was a, it was a slow and kind of painful process. It wasn't just everybody, like, I'm sure you know this, right? Everybody doesn't just wake up and say, yeah, okay, we'll be Christian now. It's fine, right? That's just not how that works. So it was a it was a long and drawn out painful process. So I think anything that the folks in power could use to legitimate themselves, even if it even if it was mythology about Odin and Thor, I think all's fair in, in love and war. Absolutely. And I think as much shit as we give um Christianizing, you know, sources and, and, and Christians in general, and rightly so, because they were colonizing through their religion. We also see this in the ancient, ancient sources and the pre-Christian sources, like Augustus did the same thing when he was legitimizing his rule in Rome. And I'm sure even further back, like mythology and linking yourself to epic ancient myths and stories was a way, as you as you said, to have your divine rule, to legitimately be able to say, I have the right to rule, no one should question me. And in particular, during ancient times and also Viking times, it seems there was a lot of violence and anyone who felt like they should rule instead, they're going to be there to challenge you unless, you know, a god is on your side. I'm going to make a sweeping generalization here, that broad sweeping generalization that perhaps the only reason we have myths that are written down is because some king wanted to connect himself to some god. (laughs) Like maybe all the myths are propaganda. I'm not going to argue yes or no. I do think there are also like folklorists and and other sources who had other ideas. I imagine it probably is about where you are and which culture we're talking about. But I'm not disagreeing. I think that's a huge part of it. This is why I'm saying sweeping generalizations. I mean, look, we we looked at this with Great You Controls the Waters. We've looked at it with Augustus. Now we're taking a look at this in the ancient ancient Nordic sources. And I'm just I'm just connecting the dots here. And again, this is a very broad generalization, but I'm starting to have my suspicions. Well, piggyback on that one, and even you know, one step further, another part of it too is nationalism, right? I know that's kind of a, a bad word, right? Especially when we're talking about Norse myths, but when everyone is Christianized in Europe and then everybody is like doing the same thing and reporting to, to Rome right before the Protestant revolution, right? How do we distinguish ourselves from other groups of people? Well, we have this Viking past, right? Do you? No, right? We're the Vikings. We're better than you. And you see that in ancient, in ancient Greece as well. You see it amongst the city-states. Like Athens very much crafted their own narrative of who they were, who their heroes were, and how that work to set them apart and make them, you know, in their opinion, the best. And you see it in Spartan mythology and in the idea that Heracles went all over the world and all over the ancient Mediterranean and just had a kid everywhere. You know, they they had their own way of creating their own propaganda, whether it was about the right to rule, which it was in some cases. There was a lot of places where Heracles is my dad, so I get to rule. Or it was about creating a unique identity for your city-state area. Pele, Hawaiian goddess of volcanoes, fire, and rebirth. Maeve, Celtic warrior queen and nemesis of heroes. Kiyohime, Japanese fire-breathing snake demon. Pesta, Norwegian spirit of the Black Death. Our book, Women of Myth, is a fascinating look at women and femme characters in world mythology, including goddesses, heroines, and monsters with captivating illustrations by Ringo Award-nominated artist Sarah Richard. It's the perfect gift for the mythology lover in your life, including yourself. Find Women of Myth wherever books are sold.
Our book focused on women in world mythology, and you also cover many fascinating female characters in Norse mythology, including goddesses like Freya and Hel, iconic beings like the Valkyries and Vulva, and human heroines such as Oslog and Gudrun. Who are some of your favorite women in Norse mythology, and what can we learn about women's place in the Norse world from their stories? Yeah, um, there are actually a lot of great women in Norse myth, kind of contrary to what we would expect from such a kind of a male-dominated society where there are very clear gender roles and, and women work in the home and, and men work outside the home and that sort of thing. But the, I mean, the, the goddess Freya, I think everybody is at least familiar with on a, a visceral level, right? She's kind of the queen of the Valkyries and a total cat lady. That's always one of the fun things about her. She's got this chariot that's pulled by cats. And she's also worshipped for fertility, um, which is really common, I think, with pantheon religions and women, right? What's important about women in a medieval society, right? It's usually their ability to bear children. Also, let's be honest, women who are also associated with love are very highly tied to fertility and war. Right. Um, so we also have other women, um, like, so the Valkyries are kind of these elite shield, shield maidens that are kind of the only the only ones that are allowed to be transgressive, right? Because they work for Odin. Um, and so they kind of have these, their, their job is basically to do Odin's, Odin's bidding in war and they collect all of the, the dead souls of, of the valiant men who die and carry them up to Valhalla um, so that they can fight for Odin at Ragnarok. He's got this army of the dead that he's collecting, which by the way, is part of the reason why Odin likes to stir up war is to create more dead humans for his army of the dead. He's just trying to create a, you know, a, a zombie army as, as most gods do. <laughs> somebody's got to, you know, I mean, somebody's got to try and stop Loki when the end of the world comes. With dead bodies and zombie armies. And wait, who is the bad guy? I mean, at least he's honest about it, right? <laughs> wow, now I just want to have a whole episode about Norse zombies, Jenny. <laughs> it is spooky season. Maybe we should. <laughs> yeah, we should put that, you know, put that on the list of things to do. <laughs> I mean, there there are, I think, a couple uh, zombie episodes in Norse myth, if you want to talk about zombies. There are uh, instances where, um, so, okay, there's this, this Valkyrie named Spava um, who marries this hero named Helgi, and they have, like, this re reincarnation thing a couple times that happens. And honestly, I think it was just there were several versions of their story, and the Christians were just like, well, wait, how can they do this and then do this? But they all died. So I think they were just like, ah, ooh, uh, okay, reincarnation. And then they kind of fixed it by having these three stories where they get reincarnated three times. Um, but one of them, the, the husband, Helgi, dies, and the, the wife, Svava, is very, very, very sad. Um, or maybe she goes by Sigrun at that point. Her name changes a couple times because of these. But it's always the same characters, and she goes to his burial mound, and what do you know, zombie wakes up, spends one more night with her, and then dies again. There are stories of people coming to life in their burial mound for like one last thing and then they, they kind of die again. So there are, there are kind of Norse zombies, I guess. So which characters, uh, gods, goddesses, heroes, or monsters that you researched in this uh, book surprised you the most as you were researching this book and why? You know, it's funny, this, this pantheon of, of gods and these, these human heroes, they're all really cliche, so I don't think that surprising is the word. And I don't say cliche to be mean, like I'm not taking anything away from them, but they are very typecast characters, right? There's the dumb brute, there's the trickster, there's the pretty girl, right? It's exactly what you want from a, a mythology, right? It's, there's like one of everybody. But I think the one that's, that's kind of surprising to most people is the goddess Hell. And the thing that's kind of unique about her is that by the time Snorri was writing the, the prose era, Hel was a person. She is a goddess. She is a daughter of Loki. So her siblings are Fenrir the wolf and then the Midgard serpent. Loki had some rather unusual children. But she's, you know, she's got a personality. She's kind of grim. She's morose. But she's not mean, right? She doesn't kill people. She just takes care of them when they die. She's got a physical description, right? Her face is kind of half black and half white, as it says in, in the sources. And that's not like the guys on the original series Star Trek. Um, it's like half of her flesh is alive and the other half is dead, right? She kind of exists in this, this middle ground between life and death. But what's really interesting is that in sources prior to the prose Edda, there's no indication that hell is a person. Um, it's described as a place rather vaguely. And so we're not sure at what point the place 
had a person. And when we think about other mythologies, like, you know, there's Hades and Persephone, there's, there's Satan, right? Like, the underworld always has an administrator or a caretaker or, or some sort. So we're not sure if Snorri decided she was a person. And if so, where did Snorri get these descriptions of her from? Or if this was just something that everybody did know, everybody did know Hell was a woman, but somehow those descriptions of her never made it into the sources. So that's kind of one of those weird, surprising puzzles that you just think, well, of course, there's somebody who takes care of the underworld. But like, wait, where did she come from? That fascinates me because your description of her reminds me very, very Persephone-esque, you know, like that half dead, half living, good administrator who's not necessarily cruel, but, you know, is a dread queen. And also, like you said, the Hades of it, like it was a place. And of course, you need an administrator. And that version of what the afterlife looks like is quite different from the Christian afterlife, which we see later. I would love to know where that where the actual description of her came from. That's so fascinating. Well, but there's also two afterlives in Norse myth. So there's Valhalla, where all the brave men go. And then there's hell, where all of the women and children and people who die of natural causes go. So that, that gender binary is built very much into death. And I will also say that hell in, in Norse mythology is not really a place of, of torment, right? We have one very prominent god named Baldur, and the most important thing he does is die. Um, his death is what kind of signals the start of Ragnarok or the coming of Ragnarok. So he's kind of uh, intricately tied to this, this end-of-the-world destruction myth. And in Snorri's writings, and a little bit in the poetic era, it's kind of like he's going to be a guest of it, held in high honor in hell. And, you know, Snorri in the prose edit talks about, like, some of his brothers going and trying to bargain for his return from hell. Um, and, and ultimately, he is unsuccessful, so he has to stay in hell, but he just kind of sits there in high honor. His wife goes to join him. So it's like, it's not a place where he's being tormented or tortured. It's just kind of a another realm, another kingdom that's a little bit more morose and dark. It is kind of a very Christian monk thing, though, to assert that hell is in fact a woman. That I mean, if you're taking hell as in they're, they're making a, a connection between hell and, and the Christian hell, um, which I'm not necessarily saying there is a connection at all, but this is a Christian lens that we have on everything by this point, right? Uh, not Not really. I mean... I will say growing up very Christian and very Catholic, uh, the binary of uh, how your afterlife would have looked. I mean, hell sounds a lot more like purgatory to me, and it would make sense that would be run by a woman. But the actual Christian hell that you're thinking of, Jenny, is layered with like, it would be administrated by a man and it would be administrated by your big bad. So to have like a not awful woman administrating it feels like they're kind of setting it aside as the almost the purgatory in the Christian religion. And that makes sense because that's where all your unbaptized people go, people who didn't know they could convert, where your women and children who die in childbirth or before they, they can be given last rites would go, as opposed to like the hell in the Christian hell where Satan is going to punish you with, with his demons. Again, I don't know enough about Norse mythology. I just want to be clear that like if we're going to put the Christian lens on it, that we do explain what the Christian hell would have looked like at this time. Yeah, good point. <laughs> I'm not saying that these are two similar hells in terms of the mythology. I'm just going off of like the word similarity and the idea that like a woman would be, they would have a negative view of a woman that way. Yeah. No, I know. And at this point, you've got like things like purgatory, and then you've got the rings of hell if, as to like who's being punished for what, like, it's a it's a whole thing. And like, I don't know, you, you could be right, I'm reading it one way because of how I grew up and you're reading it a different way. But I do think it's super fascinating that she had no description and it was kind of just a place until Snorri gave it to her. And Snorri is quite a late source. Which character, god, goddess, hero, heroine, etc. do you most identify with? That's so funny. I, I actually don't think I have one. <laughs> Like I, I read them and I appreciate them for their literal, uh, their literary and historical value, but there's not really room in the Norse myths for a nerd. Like there are no nerds, and I'm like, I mean, I, I think of myself as kind of assertive, but ultimately I'm a pacifist, so I'm like, I'm not going to just go out there and kill people for their money. Like that doesn't mean that's not who I am. <laughs> but that's kind of the hero trope, just because their social values were so different. So, yeah, I, I mean, I kind of just I see it as a world apart and a world that I don't fit into, but it's still fun to read and research. So we're both huge Tolkien fans. 
And um, we both love Lord of the Rings, grew up reading it. Um, and I noticed that in your book that you mentioned Tolkien drew a lot from Norse mythology in creating the world of Middle-earth and the characters in Lord of the Rings, and that sometimes his inspirations were cleverly concealed. What are some examples of what you mean? Uh, well, I will just say that I also love Tolkien, and I could talk about this for hours. And in fact, I did do a Tolkien and Norse myth talk on Jackson Crawford's uh, YouTube channel another friend of mine who does Norse myth. So I think that went on for like an hour and a half. So stop me if I get uh, if I get going too, too far and I don't stop. I, I mentioned that it's cleverly concealed first off because there are some fantasy writers who just yoinks this three-headed guard dog out of Greek mythology and puts it in front of a door and says, all right, guard dog, there we go, right? Tolkien takes ideas and characters and themes from Norse mythology and interweaves them into his own Catholic uh, sensibilities and his, you know, his interest in language and, and this, this fictional world of Middle Earth that he was creating. So he doesn't do so much of the yoink. He takes things out of Norse mythology and like plays with it in really creative ways. But that being said, there are some examples that are like pretty straightforward and some that are like three steps removed that you kind of have to unpack. So um, some of the more straightforward ones in the saga of the Volsungs, we have a king named Sigmund who dies in battle. His sword is broken. As he lays dying on the battlefield, he gives his broken sword to his wife to give to his son, who will be the greatest king who ever lives, right? Uh, Sigurd then reforges that sword. It is magic, right? And he becomes the greatest king that ever lived. Do, do we want to say Tolkien's name of that sword? Come on. <laughs> so in the, in the Norse uh, myth, the sword is named Gram, which I think means flame, if I'm remembering correctly. But yeah, we have uh, Anduril in the hands of Aragorn. He becomes the greatest king that ever lives with the broken sword reforged from his his fathers. Isn't it called something like the Flame of the West or something like that? Like something really like on the nose? Uh, flame of the West is the translation that they use in the films. I want to say it's if you like go to the Elvish in the back of the Silmarillion or something like that, it's like ambiguously maybe Light of the West or something like that. But definitely the same idea. Definitely playing with that. Oh, no, Graham means wrath, not flame. But still very similar. Uh, there's certain characters that I think are kind of similar. So I mentioned Baldur, the god who um, basically his, his job was to die. Baldur was his father's favorite son. Baldur had a funeral in a boat. Baldur made right, some arrogant mistakes. Baldur had premonitions of death that were haunting him. Baldur had a brother who was not loved quite so much and was punished for his death. So Baldur is basically a, a very Boromir-esque figure, or I guess Boromir is a very Baldur-esque figure. So just these, these character tropes. And I think if we look at the societies in Middle-earth, I think that the folks in Gondor are kind of probably the closest to a Viking society. You know, their friends in Rohan were kind of supposed to be a little more Anglo-Saxon, but there's still some kind of fun Beowulf stuff happening there, which is supposed to be about a Scandinavian hero. Um, but I think my favorite, my favorite Norse reference is Frodo is an anglicized form of Trothi, who was a Norse king, and I think the only one in all of the sources that was ever celebrated for ushering in a reign of peace. So King Frodi had Frodi's peace, which later scribes said it coincided with the birth of Christ and the Pax Romana, and it became this like this 30 years of peace and prosperity, and everybody was happy, except Odin, of course, who needs dead people for his army of the dead. So ultimately, he ends up betraying King Frothi. Which brings me back to the question of who's the baddie here, really? <laughs> not King Frothi, although he was not particularly nice to um, some, some women, which is how he was killed. But yeah, so when he's still our good guy, and um, when we're still we're still rooting for King Frothi, one of the ways that he tested the contentment of his people, are they well fed? Are they happy? Do they want wealth? Do they want power? Like, do they covet? Or are they just good? Is everybody content? Um, he would let gold rings fall off his hands and fall on the side of the highway. So in Two Towers in the book, we have this very specific, oddly specific line that kind of stands out when Faramir is standing before Frodo and says, I would not take it if it lay by the highway. So he, Faramir is then passing King Frothi's test. And, and if you're going to pick a, a Norse king name for a hobbit, it's going to be one who's concerned with peace and food, right? So kind of the only acceptable name for Frodo, I guess. 
That's really fascinating. Um, you also mentioned a connection between Gandalf and Odin. I'm so interested in hearing that too, because I remember as a kid, I don't know which came first, whether I read Norse myths first or whether I read the Lord of the Rings first, but I remember seeing illustrated pictures of Odin in, in some Norse myth book that I had and thinking, oh, wow, they just ripped off Gandalf. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the descriptions of Gandalf and Odin physically are very similar, like the gray beard, the the cloak, the, the hat or whatever, like conceal the face, conceal everything and kind of walk through the world kind of as this mysterious figure that interacts with mortals. And, you know, Odin's thing is people don't always know that they're interacting with him because he's in disguise and his disguise is always the same. Always mysterious stranger. You kind of wonder why people keep falling for it because his disguise is always mysterious stranger. But they're both kind of these these figures that are associated with wisdom and the knowledge of history and self-sacrifice. I think Tolkien's biggest thing, again, coming from his own Catholic background and the fact that he's a man of the 20th century, is he decided to take away some of that moral gray area that, that Odin has. If Gandalf says he's going to help you, like he's not going to betray you so that you die. He's just not going to do that. Gandalf also has, it seems, absolutely no interest in women. So he's not like the, the chronic abuser or cheater or the not so great to, to women and to not faithful to his wife figure. Because I don't think that Tolkien's Catholic sensibilities would allow for him to have a good guy character that did those things. So that's kind of like, whereas I think Balder and Boromir is like a really clearly copy and paste kind of character put into this new scenario and and in this very kind of moral world Gandalf is like very half Christ figure and half Odin figure it's pretty half and half I think that's really interesting that like Odin possibly would betray you and kill you and then make you part of his zombie army because that's his his big overarching goal although I don't know maybe that's why in the Hobbit Gandalf keeps taking off when they most need him maybe that's how maybe that's how Tolkien approached that part of of Odin's personality, being unreliable a little bit. It's like, oh, wait, hang on, I forgot. Let me show up at the last minute. Sorry, guys. You may have a point there. Maybe Gandalf was just sneakier about it. (laughs) We all know that there's only one person who's cool with their dark army they're making on the side, and that's Saruman. No, I I find Gandalf, I mean, obviously the Christian stand-in of Gandalf is fascinating, and I think he has to disappear from that whole predetermination of like how how much can god interfere and how much do the humans have to do before he can actually help which i really love that going back to like odin being a bit conflicted and also how much can a god interfere in what should be the matters of men and when can they interfere and you know i love at the end of uh lord of the rings again i'm such a nerd i can't help it but i do love that epic battle where he's like i guess i'm all in i guess this is our ragnarok now you know (laughs) he's like i gotta fight (laughs) well and i think also like in the Judeo-Christian West, we tend to think of gods as being immortal and omnipotent, and a lot of these mythologies, they're not immortal. Most of the gods die in Ragnarok. Uh, they, they can't stop certain things from happening. They get annoyed. They get injured. They get, you know, like, shit happens, if I can say that on your podcast, and, like, there's nothing they can do about it. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think that's really pre, pre-Christian beliefs. Like, you see it happening with, like, okay, the Greek gods don't all die, but a lot of them get imprisoned. They're always afraid of being overthrown. Like, they have a real fear that is based in what people would have believed, which is, eventually I'm going to get old and someone's going to come take my stuff. How do I stop that from happening? There's so much worrying about prophecies and far-seeing futures. Usually it's your son coming and taking your stuff. Or Loki, just stirring shit up. The solution is to eat your son. (laughs) (laughs) never expose it that kid's always coming back (laughs) otherwise he'll chop off your testicles kill you and marry his mother i mean sorry gone down another rabbit hole So I know you said you didn't watch the Vikings, but I did throw in a Vikings question that you probably know the answer to anyway. (laughs) I am a massive fan of the show Vikings. And one thing I noticed and loved about that show is that there were always, first off, there were lots of women who fought in battles, um, which they might be, you know, made that um, bigger than it actually was. But in that show, both men and women were just absolutely dressed to the nines for every battle. Their hair was done, their makeup was done, they all looked incredibly fabulous, they all had eyeliner on. What do we know about Viking hairstyles and makeup and grooming? Well, okay, so I I haven't seen the the TV show, but 
I have read the accounts written by a Muslim diplomat called Ibn Fadlan. His accounts are some of the most detailed accounts of Viking Scandinavian grooming rituals. So one of the things about the Muslim world at the time is that they were much further advanced in things like science and medicine than northern Scandinavia. So Fadlan watched this group of Vikings. He describes like body paint or tattoos. He, he's fascinated with the women's jewelry, which indicates their husband's wealth in like this very systemic way. Um, he describes these very, this, this human sacrifice ritual, which again, may be a little bit embellished. We're not sure where there's like, they're washing a woman's uh, feet because she's an enslaved woman who has quote unquote volunteered to die with her master who has just died. But he also, he, he describes their, their bathing ritual where they all basically, you know, are washing their, their hands and their face in the same bowl of water. And he comes to the conclusion that these are the filthiest of all his people. But, you know, keeping in mind that his, his knowledge of health and medicine is so much more advanced than theirs, they thought that they were exceptionally clean. Uh, cleanliness and, and appearances were very important to the Vikings. One of the most commonly found artifacts in, in graves and tombs are combs. And, and they didn't bury things lightly because things were expensive, right? Everything was expensive in a cold climate with lots of rocks where it's hard to farm. So like the, the, the combing, the hair rituals and, and the, all that was going to be important in the afterlife. So how much of it is, is accurate in the show? I mean, it's, I can't say, um, but it is at least accurate that Every day, those Vikings would have wanted to be looking their best, whatever that best was. I, I think it's fairly safe to assume long hair on women. Men might have had their descriptions of these kind of like their hair is cut in such a way to not interfere with wearing a helmet. So these kind of like reverse mullet things where it's shorter in the back and longer in the front. There have been different ways that, that archaeologists have tried to visualize this based on, you know, descriptions and, and that sort of thing. Um, they look pretty funny if you want to Google them. But like this, this notion that like they're grungy, dirty, heathen raiders that are going to come and attack your church. I mean, like, yeah, they very well might have come and attacked your, your church because churches, you know, in Ireland and the UK, that's where they kept the wealth. That's where they kept the money. They, it wasn't that they specifically hated Christianity. It's like they wanted your money. They, they might have been uh, violent raiders, but they were good looking violent raiders. They weren't grungy, at least by, you know. Year eight hundred European standards. Oh yeah, they were they were they were better. They were taking care of themselves a lot better. And I will say, like a thing to note about this time in in Europe is, your, as you said, churches where you kept your money and not just your money. The church took a tithe, which is a, a certain percentage of what you made. So that could be money. It could also be food, wine, anything you were producing. So if you were going to go somewhere and raid, that's why would you not go there? You'd look for the first cross you could see and you'd be like, that's where all the goods are. Like, it just makes sense. Also not very well defended because it's not like a fortress. Uh, it, it might depend on where you're talking about because some of those churches, like the cathedrals, like I'm thinking in particular in places like York would have been surrounded by huge city walls. So you would have had defenders who would have been defending the area to keep people out. But other places, smaller churches definitely wouldn't be that well defended. Well, especially on islands, right? If you're coming by boat to go after those little islands that are really isolated and can't call for reinforcements. Although I will say the Book of Kells, the Vikings are always off of the Book of Kells and that they managed to hide in plain sight right on the Isle of Man. You mentioned earlier, earlier in our chat, women potentially on Viking longships. Were there women Vikings? Uh, again, it happens fairly frequently in the myths. It might have happened in real life. But honestly, I think most of the the women that we assume were on like the long ships and all of that, they were probably enslaved. You know, the other form of currency that we haven't mentioned here because it's uncomfortable is people, right? The Vikings would raid, they would enslave people, they would take them back. Women were, of course, particularly valuable because they needed to populate Iceland. So I don't, I mean, I would like to think that all of the women we find associated with these long ships and remains and all of that were female Vikings, but that's probably not true. Although I'm, I'm not going to say never, right? There's, I'm sure there's a few Eowyns out there that went to fight with the men and that is buried in Birka. I'm, I'm sure there are a few of them, but it doesn't seem to have been the norm. 
So Jenny and I, a few years ago, uh, with my husband, went to Stromness, to the Orkneys for Haggisgiving. We went there for Thanksgiving. It was a lot of fun. And we went to a place called Mays Howe, which is an ancient Neolithic burial site that at one point in time, the Vikings sort of stumbled upon during a bad storm. And they actually broke into this Neolithic site through the roof to take shelter during the storm. Inside Mays Howe, there is a drawing that has been connected back to the Vikings. It looks like a kind of demony creature. I was wondering if you knew anything about this or about this legend and could maybe tell us about it? I don't think I know any more about it than you just described, but there are some fun examples of this that are like Viking graffiti. I think most people think that it's supposed to be like they were just doodling a Midgard serpent or something like that, as would have been like a, a frequent monster um, to, to doodle, I suppose, if you spent most of your time on a ship worried that some monster was going to come out of the sea and eat you. But I think my favorite Viking graffiti, which is not at all related to your, not at all related to your question, is they have found a comb that had the word comb etched in it. They just wanted to make sure you knew what to do with it. <laughs> but yeah, like, you know, the first grader at the wooden desk who's just going to write the word desk on their desk while their teacher is talking sort of situation. Like how bored you had to be and what did you have around you? And yeah. That is strangely adorable. I don't know why. <laughs> The few examples of the elder futhark, which is the older form of writing. The younger futhark would have been more common during the, the Viking era. Um, do we have any more questions or should we should we let Kelsey ask us some of her questions? Yeah, if Kelsey has any questions, go for it. Well, all right. I will start by saying I have a copy of your book and I think it's great. And I was wondering if you could talk to a little bit, um, maybe you've said this for your podcast listeners before, and I'm sorry if I missed it, but um, how did you decide which women to include in the book and which ones not to include? Because like there's just if you've got the whole world as your oyster. How did you how did you pick? So hard to answer that question because it was hard to uh, leave people out, you know, and I think we tried to achieve a real good balance in terms of diversity and including obviously diversity of places in the world, but also um, diversity of roles, diversity of ways women could be in the world and how they were depicted, you know, because we have goddesses of love. We have heroines who both did and didn't fight against strict gender roles, women who were storytellers, who were um, leaders of their people, who were warriors. And um, the monster section is especially cool um, just in, in terms of what monstrosity was as applied to women in various places in the world too, like in the conversation around that. So I think that like we really tried to um, make it kind of a, a diverse blend of ways women could be. We also have femme characters. We've got a couple of transgender or, you know, gender fluid characters in there too. So we really tried to depict a lot of different ways women and femme people could be in the world and were depicted in mythologies. Our illustrator, Sarah Richard, is just incredible. And one of the things that I was really stressed about when we were doing this research is, and I'm sure you found this in your research, women are described constantly as being beautiful. It's like the only description of some women is they were so beautiful. And as much as we wanted to have as much diversity as possible in where the stories came from and who we featured and how women's roles looked, I was incredibly like, we have to have body diversity. I didn't want to put a book out that didn't have that. When you have a book like ours where it's both words and illustrations, those illustrations carry a lot of weight. I will second that. I was so pleased when I started seeing the illustrations roll in for Norse mythology. And I was kind of my, my hill that I was going to die on was like, please no horn helmets, right? I was like, so I was so worried about like the historical accuracy of like what people were wearing and all that, that I don't think I ever specified body diversity because it was just like, mostly men, statistically speaking, for the characters. And when she, when I first saw the sketch she sent in for um, the goddess Frigg, I like got very emotional because this, this beautiful queen mama goddess has a tummy and hips. And like, I didn't even ask for it. And it was just there. And I was like, yes, that's, that's what we needed. That's exactly what we needed. Yeah, when she did Morgan Le Fay in our book, I was like, I was almost in tears. Like, she's this beautiful, okay, she's kind of a villainess, but she's a seductress. And she had hips and boobs and everything else. She was a well-stacked cupcake, and I was so happy. And the same with the Morgan. Like, the Morgan sometimes is, like, very ephemeral and tiny. And, you know, when Sarah delivered her, her drawing of her, she looks like 
you know, she's got the big hair from Brave, but she's got thick thighs. Like, she looks like she could destroy you. Uh, my favorite was the Vietnamese uh, soldier riding the battle elephant. I mean, I, I love I love elephants, but that one was just like, ah, yeah. Oh, she's incredible. I, so I, I had to research how to pronounce this. I think it's Chu Ti Chin, and I could be completely mispronouncing that, but I'm pretty sure. Apologies to anyone who speaks Vietnamese. But yeah, she's she's amazing, right? Like the the war and and she's one of the possibly the only character I'd have to double check where like she probably did exist, but so much around her was mythologized that we felt it was worth it to bend the rules a little bit to keep her in, you know? Like there's so much mythology around her being 9 feet tall and having these gigantic breasts. So her her curviness was built into the myth and we wanted to make sure that her illustration reflected that not only was she very athletic as this, you know, general and war leader, but that she was was curvy. Well, and and like Freya, of course, our Norse goddess of sexuality and love and all that kind of stuff. Like she's also the queen of the Valkyries. And, you know, without me even saying any, I said, I gave very little notes aside from like no horn helmets and like, well, this person's hair is described as this color. Like that's basically all I gave. You know, Sarah really latched on to the, the queen of the Valkyries type styling. So she's got like a shield, she's in her cart with her cats. And it's not like, like one of my pet peeves is naked Valkyries. Like it's been in art for so long. Like, like I'll, I'll, I'll rant about this till I'm blue in the face. Nobody will get on a horse without pants unless they've lost a bet. Like that's not how you ride a horse. That is so uncomfortable. You don't do that. So, and I, I think this is just like one of those, those brilliant examples of like, this is why women need to be writing these books and illustrating these books because it's been done by men for so long. And then you give the same material to someone like Sarah and you get these completely different images, the likes of which you have never seen before. And it's exactly what we need in the 21st century. Yeah. I mean, also, we had like really famous characters just like you did, where there's huge expectations from people on how they're going to look. And I remember when we briefed Mulan because we we knew we needed to include an illustration of her. I was like, I do not want to see anything resembling Disney. I want her to be fierce. I want you to look at her and be like, yes, that is a soldier. And just what she delivered was gorgeous and just next level. What uh, what's it like writing a book together? I don't think I've ever written something collaboratively. So like, did one of you like write some of the entries and the other wrote the other? Or did you like, were you just on, on Zoom, like, you know, for the entire pandemic, like trading drafts? What was that process like for you? Thankfully, we'd been writing together for a while for the podcast. And we have like a really set way we work with each other. We kind of knew that we would be able to match each other's voice and tone. So writing the book together was less of a worry. How we did it realistically was we divided up the women in the book and we each took roughly half. I think Jenny did one or two more than I did. And then one of us would write the entry. The other one would edit the entry and then we would collate the whole thing. And then we both did the copy edit of the book. Again, I don't know how I would do this with anyone other than Jenny because we've been working together on the podcast for so long that our voices can be kind of matched. Our tone works. I can just imagine trying to do it with someone else. I don't don't know if I could do it. Well, I will say it seems pretty successful because I can't tell which one person A wrote and which one person B, like not having ever seen your individual styles before. It's not jarring at all. So it seems to work quite well. I've had friends and family try to figure out which entries I wrote and being real sure that they could tell. And then the one that they picked, I was like, no, Jen wrote that one. (laughs) We edit each other's work, like everything I wrote, I sent to Jen, everything Jen wrote, she sent to me and we would just double check and just give it a different eye and make sure that like things that I was saying made sense at six in the morning or whatever. So we kind of have that process basically set from how we work together on the podcast anyway. So it's pretty seamless. Um, What are you working on next? Well, um, I actually have a manuscript in progress that I am taking more than four months to write this time that I hope to be a Tolkien and Lord Smith book um, that kind of follows the progression of Lord of the Rings and kind of integrates some of the Norse Smith stories into it. Oh, that sounds fascinating. That sounds amazing. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been absolutely fascinating. Uh, yeah, it's been such a thrill. We've really enjoyed talking to you and learning more. Where can people find you if they're looking to find out more about you? I actually am very bad at self-promotion. So most of my social media stuff is set to private. But if you all just tell me that Jen and Jenny sent you, I will let you be my friend. My Instagram is kelsey.a.fuller.shafer. But I will warn you, I'm not really a public educator. I'm kind of just a a nerdy scholar, pseudo-librarian. 
So my social media is not particularly active. So it, it, the book is Norse Mythology, The Gods, Goddesses, and Heroes Handbook, From Vikings to Valkyries, An Epic Who's Who in Old Norse Mythology. And you can find it wherever books are sold. It's out now. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.